Let's go to the book of Mark, chapter 10, and we'll be reading from verses 17 through 22. And when you get there, let me know by saying amen. Get there on your digital device or your paper device or your brain memorization device, whatever you got there. And so we will start reading in verse 17. And as he was settling out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, you lack one thing. You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You may be seated. Thank you for standing for the word of the Lord. I want to speak to everyone today on the title, Just a Little Bit Lost. Just a Little Bit Lost. I understand that there's a lot of things going on in our world today. You hear it over and over again every week, almost every day. I understand the struggles and I know job situations. If you were to look at my job and the things that we have gone through this year, it's, it's aggravating. Um, a lot of things that are outside of your control. People, situations are harder than probably it's ever been financially in the home. And, and I know that we're combated by this every day. Some situations are much worse than mine. And, and I guarantee you as a church, we're praying for you. We're praying for our country and our world. But what I worry about as a church is that we get so consumed with the world and the world's problems. When you look at social media and those of us, and I'm not pinpointing anyone here in particular, is that we are so consumed with things that really aren't our problem. Situations that we don't really need to be battling with. And what can happen as Christians is we get consumed by the world and its problems that it has put on itself. We already know from the Bible, David, that what the end times are going to look like, and they're looking like what we're seeing in the year 2020. But as the people of God, we shouldn't be shocked. But what astonishes me is how the people of God are shocked. And how they get into all of that and don't focus on what matters the most. We get so confused, consumed about which political party should we stand with? Which conspiracy theory should we believe in next? 
When God's saying, why don't you focus on me and what I'm trying to do through this situation? Why are you holding on to the world and the problems that it's going to inherit? And guess what? It's going to get worse and worse. Now, I'm going to try to encourage you, but I'm probably going to be challenging here. It's been a while since I've preached last, so you're going to bear with me. I do have a timer up here. I'll, I'll try to follow it. But really, what I want to steer our attention to is to make sure that we're on the right trajectory. That we have the right things in focus. And that as a church, we aren't just meeting and having a great worship service, hearing a good message, or maybe not. It all depends on how this will turn out. But then we go home and we think we have it all lined out and God's looking at us and saying, they got it mostly right, but they're just a little bit lost. I don't want that to happen in my life. I don't want that to happen in my family's life. I don't want that to happen in vertical church. I don't want to be just a little bit lost. Little things often have large consequences. January 28 of 1986, the Space Shuttle Challenger. 73 seconds after liftoff, it exploded. It was torn apart. Seven passengers, five astronauts, one payload specialist, and one school teacher all lost their lives on that fateful day. When they looked back to see what was the cause, it came down to O-rings. O-rings that kept intact the, the um, thrusters on the rockets. Little O-rings. Engineers had warned that there could be a potential failure. And due to the unusual cold temperatures on the morning of the launch, the O-rings failed. All of a sudden, NASA, due to this catastrophe, they had to close the program. 32 months, there wasn't another shuttle launch. This was the 10th mission of the Space Shuttle Challenger. Nothing was supposed to happen. It was supposed to be an ordinary launch, but it wasn't all because of some little O-rings that didn't seal correctly. Little things often have large consequences. The structural integrity of the shuttle and the ethical integrity of the space shuttle program was compromised by O-rings. Billions and billions of dollars had been lost that were invested all because of O-rings. I'll tell you again, little things have large consequences. Bruce Barton, he was an American politician, advertising ex executive, and a writer. He said, sometimes when I consider what tremendous consequences come from little things, I am tempted to think that there are no such things as little things. There was a story in Poor Richard's Almanac that Benjamin Franklin compiled, a story of a horse and a rider going to war. However, when they shooed the horse, they weren't meticulous about it, and they left out a nail. And you've heard the story. It goes like this. For the want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For the want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For the want of a horse, the rider was lost. 
For the want of a rider, the battle was lost. For the want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. All for the want of a horseshoe nail. Little things can have great consequences. Jesus said that you cannot just have a little bit of leaven. You put a little bit of leaven, it's going to leaven up the whole lump. Now, this might you might consider this funny, and I know this very well. A, a woman cannot just be a little bit pregnant. You either are or you're not. There's not just a little bit. What I'm trying to say here is a little matters. This young ruler, he was a rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus and asks him the most important question. My question to you today is, have you asked the most important question to Jesus? The rich young ruler had followed all the commandments, all the law, everything he knew what to do, but he still came to Jesus with an important question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I think sometimes that we as believers think we got it all figured out. We're saying, well, I've studied your word. I've listened to some preaching and some teaching. I think I've got it figured out. And we never personally go to God and say, God, what do you require of me? Not what you require of so-and-so. Not what you require of Brother Barry sitting up here. But what do you require of me? What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? You see, we give this rich young ruler a hard time. Because we always see these stories as we're not that person. We always read the Bible as, oh, they failed. They did a bad job. But, oh, look at me. I, I got this figured out. But have we ever given him credit for the question that he asked? He went to the God of heaven. He knelt before him and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you know what the commandments say. And the young ruler, he's all excited. said, absolutely, I've done all these things. Na name them all. I've done it. I've accomplished it. I, I, I'm the best at keeping all these commandments ever since I was a young kid. The young man was morally pure. He had never committed a, an immoral act. He never took an innocent life. He, he never stole. He never cheated. He, he was a completely honest man. And even though he was wealthy and successful, he honored his father and his mother. Now think right now of every young person that you know. Did any uh, one of them even come close to measuring up to this young man. You would hope that your kids would be similar or like this young man. Sarah's up here laughing. Um, I don't know why, but she is. Um, and you would hope your kids would be like that. You would hope that your children would associate with someone like that. If that was Lizzie's best friend, I'd be like, that's awesome. You've got the guy that follows all the commandments, all the rules, doesn't disobey, doesn't cheat anybody, has been successful. Hang out with that person. That's great. Date him, marry him, do something. I know it's too early, Liz. Too early. Too early for that. This young man was a model young person. And when he tells Jesus this, 
Jesus doesn't refute him, doesn't argue with him, doesn't challenge him, doesn't say, no, I know your life, that's not true. No, he doesn't do that. But Jesus also doesn't pat him on the back. Jesus doesn't congratulate him, doesn't give him a high five. Now Mark was very clear though that when Jesus looked upon this man, that he looked on him with love. He loved this man. Mark is very clear to say there is something about this man that God absolutely loved and, and was pleased with the life that he lived. There was so much going for this man. But he lacked one thing. He lacked one thing. It would shock many of us if we were to hear that, and it probably shocked many that were around, maybe the young man's friends and family were around, and they were shocked at what Jesus was saying. But Jesus tells this young man something that He really doesn't tell anyone else in the same way. He says, here's what I want you to do. If you, young man, want eternal life, go sell everything you have. Basically, what I want you to do is I want you to take a vow of poverty for your life. That's what I'm requiring of your life. Now you would think the ruler that has lived his life this way and obeyed every commandment and had came to God and came to Jesus with this request, you, you would think that he would say, I'm so happy, God, that you've told me what I need to be saved. I'm going to do this. I'm going to run and sell everything. But no, there was something in his heart, in his life. And God looked directly at this young man and into this young man's heart and he realized there was one thing. There was one simple thing that he was keeping for himself. Something that he wasn't willing to let go. I don't know if there is something in your life. If there's something in our life that we might not know that's there. That's keeping us from giving everything to God. But if we come to God with that question. I guarantee you He will answer that question and let you know what that is. David said in the Psalms, he says, show me the secret sins and the secret things in my life that I don't even know about. We have to come to God first with the question, what must I do? But if we're going to ask the question, we have to be ready for the answer. And I'm 100% sure you're not going to like the answer. I don't know what it is for each and every one of us, but we need to find out what it is for each of our lives. Even though there was so much going for this young man in every single way, you may be able to say that he was just a little bit lost. Let's go to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to read from verses 2 through 7. Don't put that up yet. But I want to talk about a, a portion of Scripture and it speaks to the church that was at Ephesus. Now, Revelation is a book of prophecy, as many of us know. And the start of Revelation in Revelation chapter 2, there are seven addresses to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Now, that's not Asia that we know of right now. As, as of now, 
that was unknown to that portion of the world, but it was basically the east uh, known world of, of, of Europe. And so the seven addresses to those seven churches, and, and God calls them into account and begins to address them for their strengths and their weaknesses. The first church he calls is a church of Ephesus. Now, if you remember the great things that happened at Ephesus, Paul goes there to start a church. He starts preaching the name of Jesus. Now what happens is, is there are seven Jewish men that hear about the great name of Jesus, and they decide, hold on, there's a lot of power associated with this name. Let's take advantage of it. They weren't followers of Jesus. So they go and they feel like, okay, we can use the name of Jesus for our own benefit. Let's go to this demon-possessed man and let's go call on the name of Jesus and cast out this demon. Well, if you know the story, it didn't work out that well. The, that one man that was demon-possessed beat up those seven men, took off all their clothes. They ran away abused and humiliated. And because of that, the name of Jesus was magnified in Ephesus. Now, wherever Paul was going, there was great fear. There was great fear of what would happen if you didn't honor or fear the name of Jesus. Because that man said to those seven Jewish guys that were trying to uh, abuse the name of Jesus, well, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but, but who are you? And so Ephesus became a city of great revival. Now, what happened after this is because people were converted and Ephesus was a place of, of, of witchcraft and idolatry, it, it was crazy in Ephesus, and all of a sudden people were coming into the church, they were being saved, they were doing bonfires, burning all of their, their, their material, and all of a sudden the people that had their business lined up in, in that industry all, all of a sudden were causing an uproar. And Demetrius stands up, in the middle of the town, in the amphitheater, and he's basically making an uproar and saying, Paul, and, and this name of Jesus is making us go all out of business. You know, when you tie your value, when you tie your systems to the world, they don't care anything about you except to make money and to take advantage of you. He didn't care about what was happening to the people really directly, but all he cared about was, I'm going out of business. And every one of us is going out of business. Demetrius was a silversmith. He made idols, and so there was riots. There was mobs. There was craziness, kind of similar to what's going on now, but this was due to the church. And Paul was in the middle of it. They had to get him out of it before something harmful happened to him. But God moved and completely transformed the city of Ephesus through all that craziness. And here in Revelation, God is speaking to this church. And it starts in verse 2 of chapter 2. And God says this, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. It was a truth-loving church. A church that had fallen in love with truth. Verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. 
it would be amazing to be associated with people like that. And, and I see vertical church as people that persevere and, and that know the truth and that endure and who love the Lord. God is complimenting this church. He, he's pinpointing the avenues of strength for them. But Jesus doesn't say, all that is good and good enough. In verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You don't love me the way you loved me when you first came to me. You don't love me like a brand new person who just felt the relief of sin for the very first time. You don't love me the way you did when you burned those books for the first time. And I, I set you free and I delivered you from that witchcraft and that Satanism and, and those things that were controlling your life. You don't love me like you used to love me. Yes, you still love the truth. But it's kind of put you on a pedestal and you look down at other people and all you do is hang on to what's true. But there's no mercy, there's no love, there's no grace. You don't love me like you used to. In verse 5, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. Unless you repent. I know I'm challenging you all here today. I and I want to challenge you, but I hope it's coming across as love. And I'm speaking to myself as well. But here is a church that has seen great revival. Here is a church that is, 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 is a leader in Ephesus. It's changed the city. It's turned that city upside down. They know the truth. The truth has set them free. But they lost their first love. They lost the passion that came with living for God. They came to church... They listened to the Word. They worshiped God, but it wasn't something that carried them through the week. It wasn't something that they fall in love with over and over again. It wasn't something that they fell on their knees and say, God, I remember 30 years ago how You set us free. I just want to feel Your presence again like that before. If I don't get anything else, I just want to feel Your love. God, I want the passion for You like never before. Repent. Remember where you used to be. What in the world, when you think about it, why, why would God say that? In my thinking, they were just a little bit lost. It's okay, they're just a little bit lost, but not from God's perspective. Another story is, is King Saul, and I'll quickly share this story, but basically King Saul, when he first became king of Israel, he was a humble guy. But things quickly changed. Solomon put him on a mission to destroy the Amalekites. And when he sent him on that mission, he told Saul specifically, you kill every single person and every single animal. Well, when Saul went to the Amalekites, he did destroy them. But he saved the king so he could parade them around the town. In a prideful way, kings used to do that. And they saved the best of the animals. And Saul's excuse to Solomon was, well, I destroyed them all. I just kept the king here. I'll kill him eventually. 
oh, the animals, well, they were great. They, they had no imperfection. We killed all the bad animals, but we wanted to save the really good ones. And, and really, we're saving them because we really want to sacrifice them to God. We may think, and Saul may think, he was just a little bit off. But Solomon says, oh no, because of this, because you disobeyed to the fullest extent, you will be removed from your position as king of this nation. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 22 and 23. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as, verse 23, for rebellion is as the sin of divination or witchcraft and presumption or stubbornness, is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. Saul in his own mind was just a little bit lost. He could have taken... He could have taken you to the bodies that he killed. He could have taken you to the, the, the kingdom that he had destroyed. He could have showed you all of that, but he kept some things back from full obedience to what God has commanded. Isn't it amazing how we try to find ways to navigate around the commandments of God? Let me give you a, a silly example. If God were to come to me, voice of the Lord, shouting from on high, and said, Tim, I don't want you to ever wash dishes ever again in your life. Never again. And I really don't do a lot of washing the dishes. I did yesterday a little bit, but Susan, Susan's awesome. Now, I wouldn't have a problem with that. I'd be like, sign me up. Where is that sign-up sheet? I don't ever want to wash dishes. I don't have a problem with that. As long as it meets what I enjoy and what I like, it's okay. Now, if God were to say, Tim, that's exactly my example. Let me get there. Hold on. Let me get there. Tim, you, coffee, no more. That's a sin for you. You can't have coffee anymore. I know how much you enjoy it, but it's time to let go. Now, I'd be like, hold, hold on, God. Let's, let's look at this. Let me read some other scripture. Let me make sure this aligns with what you're saying. I, now, if you interpret this Greek this way, that, that's not quite what you mean. It's not an absolute. Let's, let's reason together. Because, God, you know, you know, sometimes I might just take vacation depending on a variety of coffee or depending on a coffee shop of some sort. Are we sure this is what you want for me? As long as things line up conveniently, we don't think about it. As long as things line up in a way that we're okay with, God, sign me up, I'm going to do that. But when God looks at our life and He looks directly at us and says, Tim, I'm going to need you to do this. Yeah, I'm not requiring anyone else, but I'm speaking to you directly. I see your heart, I see your attachments, and I want, if you want eternal life, if you want to know how to gain eternity, if you want to know what it takes to live for me, you're going to have to let that go. 
These three stories that I told you today have a lot in common. A rich young ruler, a lot of good going for him. He, 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 but he has one little secret holdback. There's something that he's attached to and he won't let go everything but my money. The church at Ephesus, we're, we're going to work. We're doing the work of God. Look at what we're doing. We've, we've turned Ephesus up to, upside down. You can count on us. We're going to do it. We're a church. Praise God. But love you like we did when you first found us? Oh, we're, we don't get carried away with passion anymore. That's, that's below us now. We're, we're sophisticated Christians. We go to universities and all our pastors have PhDs. We're, we, don't, we don't get to that level. And I'm not talking down about anything like that. I'm just saying we have to be careful. The church at Ephesus, God was speaking to them, where's your passion? Where's your love? King Saul, he thought it wasn't so much when he spared Agag and didn't kill the best animals. Human nature says, whatever is easy for me to do, I'll do it. But what I want to challenge you today is that the Christian walk is not easy. I'd like to tell you today it's easy. But it's one of the toughest lives, if not the toughest life that you can live. But there are so many blessings and so much that God wants for you. He wasn't trying to take from the rich young ruler. He wanted to show the ruler what he didn't have yet. He didn't just want to take everything and say live in poverty. We don't know what God had in store for him. But God doesn't just take something away and not fill that void with something much, much better. He wasn't trying to tell Saul, I, I want you just to obey me 100%. All he wanted to see was where Saul's heart was and whether he would obey and whether Saul would rely on God and not his own ideas and plans. He wasn't condemning the, the Ephesus church because they were falling in love with the truth. He says, but if you follow me with passion, there is so much more that I have for you. Discipleship. This is the challenging thing about being a Christian. It comes down to discipleship. It's where the rubber meets the road. And what determines discipleship? Karen, what determines discipleship? It's what the God said to the rich young ruler, sell it all, give everything. Discipleship is always yes to God's commands and never no. It's always yes to your will and never no to God's will. It's always whatever you want, God, and never I'll do anything but that. I'd like to share a story with you today. And it's from a very personal side. And I was debating on whether to share this story, but I think we've been here five years or so. And Susan and I are careful about disclosing a whole lot of things. And we may not want to put this on recording. It all, all depends. It's not too big a deal, but we try to be careful. And it's from my parents' point of view. Their life. My mom and dad, when they got in church, my dad was in the Marines. And some of the north side have heard portions of this. My dad was a sinner of sinners. Every other word was a curse word. He had three buddies of his. They were all weightlifters in the Marines. And one of his buddies got into the church in Grand Prairie, Texas. 
It was an 80-year-old pastor, woman pastor, partially blind. And one of the buddies got saved and invited my mom and dad before I was ever born into that church. My dad got to that church. He sat in the back row and he left quickly afterwards. It was a Wednesday night and he told my mom, he says, those are the craziest bunch of people. They're sincere, but they're sincerely crazy. We're never going back there again. But a few days later, my dad was in his apartment and he says, I'm going to find out if this is real. He went into his closet. He knelt down. He says, God, if you're real, will you forgive a sinner like me? We all have to have that personal point where we break down and say, enough of me trying to figure everything out. I'm turning to you. After that, he was saved. It's not the end of the story. My dad felt like my grandparents, his parents, would love to hear the truth. My grandparents have been very successful. They had trust funds. My, dad, my, grandparents, my grandpa never worked after 43 years old. My dad had everything lined up. He turns to my parents, my grandparents, and he witnesses to them. He thinks they're just going to gravitate and fall in love with the truth. After they heard what he had to say, they say, if you're going to continue in this, we're completely disowning you. My dad didn't think anything. He's like, so be it. I already know what God did for me. I've gone my whole life trying to figure this out. I can tell you more and more of the testimony. God supplied him with an, an incredible job. We lived overseas. We lived in compounds, homes paid for, security private schools, chauffeurs. That's part of my life that I lived. We lived in three different countries for his job God supplied. But then my dad had to pick up his cross one more time. And he says, enough of this. I'm going to become a missionary. And after leaving Taiwan, where he started church while he was working, he started a church in Japan while he was working, he said, I want to become a full-time missionary. He went from making okay amount of money to making nothing as a missionary because he knew what God called him. And if he had to pick up that cross again, he was going to pick it up. You see, Abraham, when he got the promise, God wanted to still see if he still loved him or if he loved the promise more. And God at times may instill a blessing on you, but He says, have you fallen in love with the blessing more than me? And my dad did it all again, took his family, and became missionaries. And through all that, through my life, my life, seeing what my dad, what God did through my dad, and there won't be a book written, but my dad started nine churches in three different countries. At one time, he pastored five churches in Taiwan. He would preach at one service, get on a plane, get on a train, and go to the other city because he had fallen in love with God. There was nothing else that mattered but doing the work of God. My parents aren't perfect. I could tell you about stuff that, that I wish didn't happen, but I'll tell you one thing is they love Jesus Christ. And what I'm using for this story, and, and I'm not sure sometimes I think, how much should I share? But when I, when I share a story like this, I'm challenging everyone. I'm challenging myself to do everything that you can for God. And if it takes asking God the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to have everything that you have for me? I don't want you to hold back any of the blessings and how you want to move in my life. 
and to see what God did through my parents, I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the choices that they decided to make all for God. They gave their life for God. And if I could just follow that example and do the same thing, I don't want to be just a little bit lost. I don't want just to hang on to something that only the world can provide and not on something that only God can provide. I don't want to hold on to what the world can give. I want to hold on to what God can give. I want to be passionate about the things of God. I want to fall in love with God and everything that He has for me. Let's all stand as I conclude today. How are we rationalizing God's will so that it's really just what we want? We try to salve our conscience by saying, I'm so much saved and I'm just a little teeny bit lost. Will God even think about that? That is so silly. I know God would never make a big deal as so, as so, so small as that. I know a lot of times I come across as very challenging and very passionate, but I hope you see that there is so much that God wants from us. And as a church, I know where He's trying to take us. Even in a year like this, even through the struggles, this is nothing for God. This is nothing for God. And when we limit, when we limit Him is when we make what is nothing to Him something. And while we allow what's going on to completely consume us. I know we're humans. I know we're, we're going through struggles. But I don't want to be just a little bit lost. God, help us, God, to fall in love with You in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. I don't worry about people that are a whole lot lost. Because they know they're a whole lot lost. I worry about people that are really good people, but they're missing out on a small thing. You could go ahead and play the music. They've locked something away from God. They put up a no trespassing sign, and they try to justify what they're keeping from God by saying, surely, surely this won't make a difference to God. I mean, He's such a big God. He's a compassionate God. I'm just a little bit lost. You know the Bible is a very narrow book. Matthew chapter 7 verse 14. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. It's hard, but there's blessings. As a church, I don't want to miss what God wants to do. I'll say it again. I know I'm being redundant. I'm trying to push this forward here. That what God wants to do, I see vertical church double the size. I, I see dirt, vertical church not even fitting in this facility. You see that with me. But I don't want to become a church that just, just flows through the motion. But each one of us becomes passionate for what God wants to do. God wants to do something through your life. God wants to do something miraculous through your life. I know God's already worked through your life. But there is so much more that He has in store. So much more. Hallelujah. I'm believing it in faith. 
I'm trusting it in faith that it's going to happen. That we're not going to just be a little bit lost. But we're going to live victorious. And that God's going to work through us like never before. Praise God. Praise God. Let's lift up our hands toward heaven right now. Let's exalt the name of Jesus. I'm asking every family and every parent to pray specifically over your family.